You are listening to Faith Church's sermon from this week. We are a church that is committed to loving Jesus for life and loving others to life. We hope that this message encourages you to follow Jesus with your whole heart. Our sermon series, Change Lives from the Inside Out. It's a powerful look at the Sermon on the Mount. And this past week, I had an opportunity to text with a pastoral friend of mine. And he was texting back and forth, and I was asking him, you know, what can I combine together? What can I combine together? And he said, sounds like a Sermon on the Mount series. I said, it is. He said, there's no better way to flatten someone than to preach a Sermon on the Mount series. I said, flatten, show grace, challenge, grow hearts. And he wrote back, amen. And he said these words back that I thought were poignant to this sermon series. He wrote back and he said, the one thing the Sermon on the Mount does for each of us is is that it makes us run after his grace. Because we realize that we just cannot do it on our own. Hope that's what it's doing for you. As Jesus stated earlier in our sermon, he calls us here to true righteousness which cannot be obtained outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, we are called to live differently in a world so as to be the salt and light of the world. Remember the first sermon. Ser- the first sermon. In this series, as we go through each of these illustrations of true righteousness, your own heart will be exposed. Now, we skipped the uh, Beatitudes. We're going to go back and cover them, but... Please understand that that these things that we are talking about are talking about the Beatitudes. One of the Beatitudes is blessed are the pure in heart. You want to know how to be a pure in heart? Listen to today's sermon. It's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was taking every one of the Beatitudes and he was saying, now when I say these Beatitudes, people are going to ask, how do I live them out? So I'm going to preach a series of messages and I'm going to show them how to live that out. The test will be what you do with what you've been exposed to. Will you accept the rebuke received at the hands of the Holy Spirit as he works on your heart and then repent by turning from that sinfulness to the Savior? Will your hunger and thirst for righteousness increase along with your drive to be pure in heart? Or, I hate to be negative, will you be like the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes and reject what Jesus says and say, hey, I don't really care. I'm going to continue on in my self-deception. It's really your question. And as much as I, as your pastor, want to answer that question for you, I simply cannot. It's taken me a long time like 25 years to understand that. There are times when, as pastor, you have to step back and say, people are people. People will make decisions as people make decisions. And you can preach with all your heart every Sunday morning. They ain't going to change. It's not your job to change them. And so recently I've had that revelation from God himself. And he's asked me to look at people as people. I wonder if he's asking you to do the same. Not expect them to be perfect because you certainly aren't perfect. Neither am I. We all fall short of the glory of God. 
In the passage we studied last week, Jesus laid open our hearts and exposed the murder that is in them. Murder that expresses itself in unrighteous anger, in calling other people names, and in slandering their character. Remember, the word raka means empty-headed. It's basically like you're calling somebody an idiot. You might as well just stick a knife in their back, according to Jesus. The only proper response to that exposure is brokenness over sin, freely admitting you are a person in need of grace and mercy, and finding that in God the forgiveness he grants to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. This morning we come to a section that will also expose each of our hearts. And I'm going to leave you with this, and then I'm going to ask Pastor Landon to come and read that scripture passage. What will you do with that exposure? Please stand as we read God's word in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You've heard, it's, you've heard that it has been said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your, eye, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This has been the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Pastor Landon. So today we're going to, on your sermon outline, you can find them in your bulletins. Um, you're, you're going to find that there is issues, there's solutions, and there is goals this morning. All right? So there's going to be some issues that we need to discuss, and then there's going to be some solutions to those issues, and then there's going to be actually one goal, one eternal goal. And so today, I want to start with the very first point of your sermon outline. It's external issue. Look at verse 27 with me. It'll be on the screen in just a second here. It'll fly up. It's in red because it's Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, Jesus begins this next practical illustration that we're on this morning of true righteousness by pointing out that the, that the Pharisees, the scribes of the day, quoted the seventh commandment correctly. You have heard it said. Every last one of you, if you know the Ten Commandments, have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Other scriptures made it clear that this was very serious because the consequence for it could be severe. God sets the punishment for it in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Here's what that says. The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. He doesn't fool around. This isn't something to just say, oh, oh, yeah, 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 okay, you did that, that's all right. No, they're put to death. Now you understand why the woman caught in adultery is such a powerful illustration. In the New Testament, Hebrews 13.4 adds that for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The scribes did well to teach the commandment. It showed that they were very concerned about what the Bible had to say, and that's a good thing. We should entail and, and also be concerned with what this word of God has to say. We should be. 
It's very good and very commendable to actually care what the Word of God has to say about something. The scribes and Pharisees, though, made a big mistake. See, they took and they separated this, you got to look up here now, this from this. Let me do that again. They separated this from this. So you can know in your mind what the scripture says. It says you shall not commit adultery, but that doesn't change this. When I got to the scripture passage this past week, I I began to think about today's age. And I wonder, and, and this, this is for your pastor as well, so don't, don't think I'm pointing fingers because I realize there's 20 coming back at me. Do we know it up here, but it doesn't really impact here? Like one of our favorite shows to watch at night, because my wife is a genius, in case you don't know this, is Jeopardy. I mean, she's like, boom, 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 boom. I'm... On the other hand, I'm sitting in my recliner hoping Bible is one of the kind of categories so I at least have a flying shot. But you see, I can answer the Jeopardy questions and it doesn't do a whole lot of good for this. I can tell you all about the Bible every Sunday morning and never change this. Hence the scribe and Pharisees issue. In one sense, there's a proper caution in the practice, for it is true that you cannot see a person's heart to discern their motives. You can only examine their actions, which may or may not give clues about their hearts and motives. What I'm saying there is is simply this, friends. I don't know your heart, but God does. And you don't know my heart, but God does. See, people think they know your heart. Oh, you're this, 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 this. Hmm, did God die and give you the keys to my heart? (laughs) You don't know nothing about me, man. Until you sit down and get to know my heart. The same goes for you. You can't see a person's heart. You can only discern what their motives might be and you probably sometimes are way off. One of the problems with this is that it's resulted in them defining sin only by specific actions, which they generated their list of do's and don'ts by which they tried to live. They became self-righteous because they then elevated themselves by the list of standards. Here's what they did, you know, they, they had to have a list of do's and don'ts so that they knew what adultery was and what adultery wasn't, and so they, they kept on adding to the list, and they, of course, they would only add things that they never struggled with because, hence, we, we, we would never want to put something in our lives because our sin somehow doesn't look the same to God as everybody else's sin. We'll point their sin out greatly. But just because they sin differently, somebody else sins differently, we look at them and say, I would never struggle with that. How arrogant of us. How arrogant of the Pharisees. So 
It's only by the grace of God that you don't struggle with some of the things that we talk about in the Sermon on the Mount. It wasn't by your power. They become self-righteous because they, again, elevate themselves by the list of standards instead of what God actually said. (laughs) I started this service very pointedly saying, let's discern what Jesus really wants this morning, not what we think he wants. If you think you walk in here on Sunday morning and he wants just one hour of your service time, and you can go out there and live as you want to live and don't worry about what you learned here, you've sadly been mistaken. He wants you to be actually doers of what you say, you believe. Many evangelicals have fallen into the same trap, resulting in legalistic self-righteousness. I'm good because I don't do that, and I don't sin like person B, and my sin doesn't stink like theirs does. And I'm not good because I do do that, or I am good because I do do that, and they don't do that. And meanwhile, we read the Sermon on the Mount, and we say to ourselves, man, these Pharisees, they were way off. Um, Hello, ring, ring. So are you. Me included. When we say because we do this, we are better off than the person who doesn't do that, whatever that is. Because it's not about do's and don'ts. It's about his grace. It's about leaning in on him. And so Jesus leads us to the second issue, and the second issue is an internal issue, an internal issue. Here's what Jesus adds to the discussion, excuse me, in verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, automatically women are going to go, woo, we're off the subject. Because notice, this is aimed at a man. There's reasons for that. The reason for that is, is that Jesus understands, God understands, according to some commentaries, God understands the makeup of a human being. Men are very visual, women are not. And so he understood that. However, in the Greek, it's very clear that this is not sex-oriented. In other words, it is not aimed at just men. Women can struggle with this as well. And so, sorry to put you back on the hot seat, but you are. The fundamental problem here in the scribes' teaching is, is that they forgot that God can see the heart And he's very concerned about it. Consider that even in the Ten Commandments given in Exodus chapter 20, God's concern was for the heart. The chapter begins with God's reminder that he is one, that he is the one that brought them out of Egypt. God then commands them to do some things. I believe they'll be on the screen. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Then he says, you shall not make any idols, nor worship, not, nor serve them. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. You shall not keep this. You shall keep the Sabbath. You shall not keep the Sabbath. Woo, pastor preaching heresy. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. The religious leaders had turned each of these into a specific physical action. And hence, they made it wrong. Because every one of them is about your heart in God's hands. Oh, you say you're super righteous. Really? Did you show that guy who just cut you off on Fifth Street Highway how super righteous you were? Did you tell that boss how super righteous you were? Because you can know them up and down. You can, you can even memorize them. We had to for church membership class. Thank God you don't have my pastor as your pastor. He's now long gone with the Lord. But we had to memorize the Ten Commandments. We had to memorize um, the Articles of Faith. We had to memorize the Bible, um, every book in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. We had to memorize it all. But you know what that, that little exercise never did to me as a 13-year-old going through the membership class at St. David's Evangelical Congregational Church? It never once changed my heart. Because I still walked into Dover Area High School dropping words that would make you blush this morning. Even after repeating them from my pastor. Never once changed my heart because I knew it up here, but it didn't impact down here. The religious leaders had turned each of these again into that physical element, yet each command has an element that must come from the heart. And the last one, especially, you shall not covet, is only a matter of the heart. If any action is taken to gain object coveted, then the one of the commands of these commands will be broken. Coveting the things owned by a neighbor leads to stealing. Coveting a neighbor's wife leads to adultery. It is a matter of the heart. It is not a matter of just knowing it. The Pharisees had decided that they were righteous because they had not broken the seventh commandment in committing the physical act of adultery. But because the Pharisees were lawyers of the period, there was no doubt that they were also very good at redefining what was and was not physical adultery so when we're caught in sin we just redefine it well I really didn't lie to the pastor I really didn't talk bad about this person I really didn't gossip I really didn't because I was sharing a prayer request oh that sounds so much more holy pray for the pastor he's got a real bad pray for so and so they got a real bad so we just redefine it We find the loophole. Then we can sin and not feel bad about it. Pharisees. But we see something going on here 
in the Old Testament story of David. In this passage of Scripture in Matthew 5, 28, there's this issue that wasn't recognizing. The issue here was not recognizing Bathsheba. Now, let me give you some background before we drop that. Well, it's already on the screen. Oh, no, it's not. It will be in just a second. But let me give you some background. So David is supposed to go out to war and fight like he's always supposed to do as a king. He decides, I'm going to stay home this time. I'm going to take a vacation day, all right? And so he goes out on his roof, and you're going to read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You can read later about it. He goes out on his roof, and he sees this beautiful woman taking... Um, a bath down below. Now, automatically in our 2022 minds, we're like, well, wait a sec. Wait, why was she taking a bath on top of her house, Pastor? I mean, that's a little ridiculous. Not in that day and age. All right? This was common. And so David did not sin when he went out and he says, hey, there's a beautiful woman. He didn't sin. Here's where... Here's where it really went wrong. We're going to pick it up in verse 2 in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here's what he says. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. We're all good. The woman was very beautiful. We're still all good. And then David sent someone to find out about her. David, we're walking a very bad line right now, my friend. Then the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah. Let me reread that. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. This should have ended the discussion. Look at verse 4. David sent messengers to get right there and do you know that there are some bible scholars that just recently came out in some articles and this is for another discussion but i just thought i'd throw it out there because i saw it the other day on something i was reading that this actually was worse than an affair this could have been rape because david as a king says you have no choice you got to do it And we wonder why Jesus clarifies what adultery is the way he does. When that messenger comes back and looks at him eye to eye as a commander-in-chief of the palace and says, listen, she's, she's one of your commanders, and this is something you don't know, she's one of your commanders' wives, the discussion should be over. And if you think for some reason he just wanted to call her up to have a discussion, please. This is why it's serious what your little eyes see and how you focus on that. 
Let's consider one section of our current society. It would be easy for a person to think he was fairly good if he managed to stay true to his current spouse, right? Our society is preoccupied by this thought pattern with the entertainment media glorifying infidelity and divorce and perversion while sneering at marriage and moral purity. Now, I don't know how many of you, maybe in the wintertime more so than in the summertime, actually turn on a TV show. Marriage is no longer cool and accepted. Put them down, they say. It's whatever you make it. But this has been true for a long time, since the 60s, some tell me. But it's only getting worse. In 1992, our vice president recognized that it had become unfashionable to talk about moral values. But he did it anyway. Because there was already a recognized breakdown of the American family because of it, his speech became known as the Murphy Brown speech. You may not remember this, but here's what he did. He used that sitcom character as an example of the entertainment media promoting the immoral values that were breaking down the family. After the speech, the media did just what he said they were going to do. Of, of every one of those points that he pointed out, he pointed out some things that were wrong. He was jeered. He was chided. He was laughed at. All the society statistics 30 years later proved that Dan Quayle was correct in his assessment and predictions. But here's the real kicker. It's even worse than when he talked about it. And yet the media just keeps on saying, yeah, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Okay. So here's an overall solution to the issue. Here's the overall solution. Verses 29 through 30, Jesus gets to an overall solution. And this is important, but this isn't the most important. We'll, we'll get to the most important in just a second. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, before anybody goes out to the lobby and grabs a knife, just, just stay still. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Now, eyes and hands are primarily the issue when it comes to this sin, right? Adultery. You see, then you react. But this concept can be broadened in definition. Please realize Jesus here is using figurative and hyperbolic, they call it, description. Now, because you know why, you cannot have a right hand and still sin. Right? Like, here's the deal. If my right eye causes me to sin and I gouge it out, can I not still sin with my left eye? If my right hand causes me to sin and I take my sawzall at home and cut off my right arm, can I still not sin with my left arm? I can steal from Target with my left arm just as well as I can with my right arm. So Jesus is not saying this as a, as a thing to, to, to cause this sin to go away. He's not saying this as an all around. You know, what he's saying is, are you sold out to fighting the sin or do you want to play games on the line, friends? 
Are you sold out enough that you would actually literally, not literally, but figuratively cut out your right eye? Would you, would you drive 30 miles out of your way so that you don't have to go through the sinful situation where you are tempted? Would you not find yourself in situations where you are tempted? It's like an alcoholic who decides that they're never going to walk into a bar again. That's a very good decision. Why? Um, is it not obvious? But yet, how many of them say, ah, I can do it just once in a while? Please realize, Jesus again here is, is saying, you, you got to be you got to be passionate about it. And the reason he picks the right hand and the right eye and the hand is because in this day and age, like ours, most people were right-handed. And you know what that stood for? It stood that you were powerful and you were important. Sorry, left-handers. But it did. And so Jesus is looking at a predominantly right-handed society and he's saying, are you in this for the fight enough that you would cut off the very hand that you write with, the very hand that you grab with, the very hand that you do all your stuff with? Would you cut off your right hand? This isn't him asking a right-handed person, cut off your left hand. Because you know what? Some people would say, go ahead, cut it off. I don't use it that much. This is him asking you to cut off the very dominant hand that you have and the very dominant eye that you have, not the one that just kind of sits there. My grandfather was a left-handed person, great person, very important in my life. I remember him breaking his arm roller skating at the age of like 75. He decided he was going to go down to the roller skating rink, and he went down to the roller skating rink, and he went on his patukas, as we call it, to serenity. And when he did, he came down on his elbow, and he broke his arm. I can also remember very vividly going over to their house that time, and he took that left arm, and he had that left arm in a, in a sling. They had it in a cast and in a sling, and, and he's, he's a golfer, and so he couldn't stand not golfing, so he practiced with his right arm, and he literally went out and bought a whole set of clubs with his right arm, and he played one-handed with his right arm because he taught himself how to swing with his right arm. Now, if Jesus is looking at my grandfather, and he says, hey, Raymond Kindig, cut off your right, left arm, your right arm. He's like, go ahead. I, I can golf with just my left arm. But Jesus, knowing us and knowing the society he's talking to and understanding that most of them are right-handed predominantly, looks right at him and says, would you cut off your predominant hand if it meant you weren't going to sin? Would you be in it that deep? A person willing to carry out godly character is a world is a, is in a world that doesn't understand it. Frankly, doesn't care to in many regards. Must be willing to go the length to protect their purity. And if their marriage 
they're, if they're married, they're marriage oneness. Here's the deal, friends. People today, they don't care. I can remember being in a discussion not three weeks ago with a, some worldly people, and I made the comment, I try not to be, I try not to be in the office by myself with a lady. And you should have seen the four heads that turned around, and there was only two people in the room. You get the drift. That's ridiculous. And they'd be the same people sacrificing me on the cross if I fell and made a decision that wasn't God-honoring. But it's ridiculous for me to put standards up. That's the society we live in. Integrity stands for nothing. Just do what you're going to do and don't worry about it. And Jesus is saying here, listen, if you're not going to be passionate about it, you're putting yourself in danger. Why? Simply because our actions show our hearts. Just like with murder and anger and calling names and holding it in and boiling things up against people is a show of your heart. And Jesus is saying, once again, when he talks about adultery, he's saying, where's your heart? Are you willing to cut off your right arm and your right eye? Are you willing to set standards? Are you willing to protect your marriage? So this leads us to the final point, and that is the eternal goal of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5. Here's what he says in verse 30, the second half of it. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow. I thought we hit the stride of everything, you know, earlier on in the passage. Then he's got to end it like this. Now, if we stopped here this morning, I'm afraid we would be left dangerously close to the edge of one of two drop-offs. Either we would be left saying, I just have to do better. There's no hope for someone like me. But we need to see this morning, as we need to see every morning, that the teaching of Jesus here should bring us to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, there is good news. What Jesus is saying here is, is that, listen, you know, if you're sitting here struggling with putting standards into your relationships so that you don't fall into these sins, then please understand something. Isn't it better for you to lose a part of your body here than to burn in hell for the rest of your lives because you make a decision that is not God-honoring? 
But again, when we stop at that scripture passage, and this is where people make very dangerous decisions on Facebook. They put this scripture passage up and they say, you're either ready or not. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is, are you willing to come to me for grace and truth and love? Are you willing to give me that heart that Pastor Brett has been discussing with you since the start of this service? Are you willing to say, I will stand up, I will make standards, I will do what I have to do to protect myself? Because if you don't, you will be led down astray in a society that just wants you to be corrupted. Shocking but wonderfully, the Jesus who condemns our lust-corrupted heart is the same one who was condemned for our lust-corrupted heart. Let me read that again. The same Jesus who just wrote these words, who just spoke these words into existence under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who condemns us for having a lust-corrupted heart, is the same one who was condemned so that we could have a lust-corrupted heart and have a flying chance to live a life that is righteous for him. On the cross, he took your condemnation. He took your attitude. He took your sin-laden heart and mine. And he took it upon himself. The hell that I deserve in order to give me an eternity that I don't deserve. I don't even get close to deserving. And he did the same to you. An eternity in his presence and in the Father's presence. And on top of that, his resurrection means that we all have new life from this point forward. And it means a new heart, a new spirit. How can we pursue the purity Jesus describes here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30? I can tell you this, it's not through our own power. We should set up standards we should be careful. But even those will not do the power, will not bring the end. No, we do it with a new power inside of us, a power that comes from God's Spirit. Jesus has made all this possible. And guess what? That new heart, that new power within us, that transformation, it helps us to see others with new eyes. Next week, we are going to venture into a subject that is going to rock my heart. So I'll say, you can look in your own Bibles. And for anybody who wants to say that, you know, this, you know, this is easy for you to preach. Yeah. Yeah, but here's one thing I do know. I stand here as a non-condemned believer in Jesus Christ because he died on the cross for all of my sins, past, present, and future. And you do too. And you don't deserve a lick of it, and I don't deserve a lick of it. I don't live a life standard that is good enough to get me into heaven, and neither do you. 
And so what Jesus is driving at in all of these passages is, is that he's driving us back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying, listen, you, you struggle with this sin? You struggle with murdering people by how I define murdering people? Good, come on in. You're part of the crowd. You struggle with looking a second time and a third time and even calling for them to come up and you go get messengers to have them come up after you see them and you want to, you know, rendezvous with them. That's okay. Guess what? My grace covers you. Now, what I'm not saying is it's okay to just live in that lifestyle and continue because Jesus is very clear to the adulterous woman in John. What does he say at the end of it? You've heard this before. He says, go and sin no more. He doesn't say, go and just live your life, lady. Just keep on doing what you're doing with every guy in the town. Be free. No, he says, get off your knees because she's on her knees at this point, because they've thrown her on the ground in front of them. Get off your knees and walk out of here and stop looking for love in every man that comes your way and start looking for love in the Savior who just stopped them from stoning you to death. And some of you need to do the same. Stop looking for love in friendships, in this, in that, in everything else, and start leaning in on the grace of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only one that's going to get you through the day. The same people who put you down for standing up are the same people who are going to step on you when you fall over. I've often said that. The same people who rock my world with comments and stuff are the same people who will kick me while I'm down. So either I stand for him who doesn't kick me while I'm down and picks me off the ground, pats me up and says, go again with grace and love, or I stand for everybody else who's just going to kick me while I'm down anyway. Which one are you going to stand for? That's the call of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is asking everybody to sit up, take notice. Who are you standing for? Who are you standing for? Because if you're standing for that person's applause, that person's applause is going to turn to a knife stabbed in your back just as soon as you get turned around. But boy, you stand on his grace. Watch what happens. In Luke chapter 7, there's this story that I kind of want to close with. Jesus is in the home of Simon, a Pharisee, who has invited him for a real meal. For a meal, not a real meal. <laughs> but in verse 37 of chapter 7, here's what, he, here's what it says. It'll be on the screen. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. You've heard the story. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now Simon's sitting there as a Pharisee, and he's disgusted by this behavior and shocked that Jesus would allow her to do this. Since if he was her prophet, if he were a prophet... Simon reasoned, he would have known who she was and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. 
Again, she is a woman who is in a sin of some type. We can assume we know, but we don't know. She's a sinner. But after sharing a short parable about forgiveness, here's what verse 44 says. I got to catch my breath. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. I think Jesus is asking that question, was asking about more than just recognizing her physical presence. Why do you think that, Pastor? Because I suspect the men in that city, when they looked at her, looked at her with either desire or disgust. But Jesus saw her differently, didn't he? And he wanted Simon to see her differently as well. And so Simon's over here belly aching, like, if he was really a prophet, he wouldn't let that sinner touch him. Does he know where those hands were? And Jesus kind of goes over to the woman. You can picture this kind of. And he goes over to the woman, and he might have put her arm, his arm around her. I don't know. Um, he may have whatever, but he was sitting. And, he's, and Simon's probably, you know, doing one of these, you know, like we do. We, when we're really ticked off, we look down at the ground. Like, at least I do when I'm coaching. I, I just look down at the ground and talk to the ground because I don't want to talk to anybody at the moment. And so I'm frustrated. And so Jesus says, Simon. Simon, Simon, Simon looks, do you see this woman? No, no, do you see this woman? Because here's the real kicker. The word in Luke 7:44 that says see is the same word used in Matthew 5:28 that says looks at. So here's what Jesus is saying. Would you look at her? No, 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 no. Not look at her like the disgusting um, woman that she that she is. No, 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 no. Don't look at her as, as something you desire, Simon. No, would you look at her? Would you look at her? Would you see her for who she is? The fact that she walked in here and didn't even give, didn't, and, and did things that you didn't even give me as the person who is the home provider. Would you see that she wet my feet with her tears because she was so glad to see me and so glad to interact with me? And you, being the home provider who should have provided water, you did nothing. And yet, while she's doing that, you sit there in disgust and make a baby face and you sit there and complain about it. Would you look at her, Simon? Here's the question that it begs. Get ready. How do you look at others? Do you look at them as the disgusting people that cause you anger? 
Or do you look at them with a heart of love because they're a part of the Savior's plan in your life? Are you like Simon who sit and complains? I can't believe that person's doing this, and I can't believe that person's doing that. I can't believe this person's doing that. May I just gently nudge you and say, maybe Jesus is saying, would you look at them? No, 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 no. I mean, really look at them. Don't look at them as the person that ticks you off. Don't look at them as the person that makes you mad. Don't look at them as the person that the world looks at them as. I mean, with my eyes, would you look at them? Because the picture is here. Jesus would long that we would see each other and see those on the outside of our doors and those on the inside of our doors like he sees them, not like we see them. And to be seen by others with the same eyes is the desire of our hearts. If Jesus wants anything for Faith Church, he wants men and women both to stop looking at people as pieces of meat or as somehow a lower standard because they don't know what you know. And like that story in Luke chapter 7, he's sitting here saying, would you look at him? Would you look at him? And Jesus, knowing all things, I'm sure he knows what Simon's thinking. And so Simon is thinking, you know, uh, I, I've seen her around town, Jesus, several hundred times. No, no. Would you look at her? Whether you struggle with lust or not, you can still struggle with looking at people in a way that is not God-honoring. What will you do with it? Because as Jesus reminds us, it's better for us to deal with it now on this side of eternity than to be quite frank, let him deal with it on the other side of eternity. How do you look at every member of your church? Pastor Brett? Would you really look at them? Would you really see them? Not for what they bring, not for what they got, not for what, just see them. And then the congregation. How do you look at members and friends and your pastor? Not for the sermons he brings. Not for the Bible studies he teaches. For the fact that he's a man, just like you are. And has a heart, just like you do. And wants to see things happen, just like everyone does. How do you see him? I've been in a non-pastoral home before. 
I can remember eating roast pasta several times as a young child for lunch. How about you? What do you see? How about that coworker that drives you nuts? How about that crazy Uncle Larry? I talked about him on Wednesday. How about that crazy cousin, Sue? What do you see when you see that? Jesus is asking you. And he's saying, would you look at them? Not just for what they give or for what they have or for what they've done in the past. Would you look at them? That's the call of this sermon. If there's one thing that, uh, that I have learned, and I will say this next week again too, but I will say this much. Because I've gone through what I've gone through in my life, I've told Pastor Landon more than one time, I err on the side of grace all the time. Sometimes so that sometimes I think, do I ever give them the truth? Because seven gentlemen sat in a room somewhere in Pennsylvania until two o'clock in the morning one night talking about your pastor. And instead of calling and throwing every book that they could have at me, you know what they said? We love you. And we want to restore. And ever since that step has been taken, I have done the same for others. See, when you're given much grace, you extend much grace. How much grace have you given to people in your life? Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day, for this challenge this morning. Help us not to merely listen to the word, but to do the word, Lord. In that Luke chapter 7 passage, you look at that woman and you ask that Simon the Pharisee to look at that woman, not just look at her for what she's done or who she is, but look at her for the heart that she has. May we, Lord, in turn, look at people for the heart that we have. And Lord, if we struggle with certain areas of how we look at people, may we take drastic measures, drastic measures. May we stand with principles. Yes, even in a world that will mock us when we do. May we stand with principles so that we can show the world that we are, we are serious about living for you. We're thankful, Lord, that at the end of the day, we know we will not live up to this teaching. We can't without you. And so, Lord, what I ask for you to do in this body is, is, is that if someone is struggling with something even today, that you may embrace them in your grace. And so that they will go out and share that grace and that truth with others. 
Lord, thank you for the grace you showed to that woman in Luke chapter 7. Thank you to the grace for the grace that you showed to David, who went on from that mistake to be one of Israel's greatest kings. And you even define him as a man after your own heart. Wow, that's grace. But yet, Lord, he had to go through a time of help, of searching, of deep growth and repentance. And we're thankful for that as well. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do and all that you continue to do in each of us. And help us to go from this place after we sing this closing hymn of I Surrender All. May we truthfully surrender everything we have thought or done to people that do not line up with your word. Help us to do that today. For Lord, it's in your name we pray this all. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it encouraged you in your walk with Christ. You can find out more about Faith Church at wearefaithec.com.